to Natural MD Radio, your place to hear the whole truth on health and medicine for women and children and get the tools you need to take back your health naturally starting now. I'm Dr. Aviva Ram. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. Aviva, and this is a really special episode of Natural MD Radio for me to share with you. I had the pleasure and honor, truly the honor of being interviewed about my book, Hormone Intelligence, which officially drops on June the 8th. And I deeply hope that you will consider purchasing a copy. One, because it is, to me, the grandmother of the books that I've written. I've written, this is my eighth book, And I wrote my first book when I I started it when I was 22. It was published when I was just about 30. And I am turning 55 the day before this book drops. So I am really a grandmother. And this book follows the arc of my journey in so many ways, because my journey started out with understanding my menstrual cycle. And my journey now has taken me into menopause. And this book follows the arc of our lives as women. It follows the arc of starting out, understanding our menstrual cycles, how to chart our cycles, what our cycles mean, and what our hormones mean. And then it takes you into a lifestyle plan and a healing plan that is based on the 37 years of work that I've done with women, helping them take back their hormonal health and gynecologic health, my own life journey of what I have found to be profoundly helpful for hormonal balance and hormonal health, and also the therapies and strategies and true healing tools that I use in my practice and use with women who consult with me from all over the world. And I bring all of this to you in this, what I hope you find to be a beautiful new book. I also hope you'll bring this book into your home because it's the book that I think we all wished we had throughout so many different stages of our life, or wish we could have now, and now you have it. But it's a book that you can give to your sister, your daughter, your mother, your best friend. And one that I hope that you'll return to over and over and over in the different phases of your life as well, whether you're going through puberty, have someone in your life going through puberty, whether you are in your 20s or 30s, and just trying to figure it all out with your birth control and your hormones and endometriosis and PCOS and period problems and PMS and acne, or whether you're heading into your mid-40s, late-40s, early-50s and are finding your way through perimenopause and menopause. I also hope you'll bring this book into your home because your purchase of this book really makes a statement to the bigger world. People are watching what happens with a book like this. And the media is watching. And when we make a sea change in saying, by bringing a book like this to the forefront, by purchasing it, that we're saying, this is important to us as women. We don't want medical bias anymore. We want more tools than just pharmaceuticals and surgery. And this book is not against pharmaceuticals and surgery at all. I'm a midwife, an herbalist, and an MD. And there's a role for all of it. But we're saying we want more and we want better. And when you get the book, that tallies up in the market and that tallies up to publishers and that tallies up to the media. And when it starts to tally up and get attention, that trickles into the medical model and change starts to happen. You know, it takes on average 17 years for medical research to trickle into clinical practice. We don't have time for that. How long does it take when there's a consumer demand for something? It can take overnight practically for a shift to happen in medicine. And I'm not kidding. And I've seen that happen over my decades of the work that I do. So Hormone Intelligence is a book that I've spent the last four years writing for you, but it's a book that I've spent the last 37 years of my own life developing, and I'm so happy to bring her to you. And yes, I call her her. You'll understand when you get her. She's a beautiful book. So without further ado, I'd like to share this interview with you. It was very special to me. Um, Ricky and Abby are formidable women. Ricky, you know from her 
years as a talk show host and actor. Abby is an incredible documentarian filmmaker. Together, they did The Business of Being Born. They've more recently done The Business of Birth Control, which will air, uh, which has had some showings um, privately, but will hit the prime time before long. It's a, an important documentary, which I had the um, distinct honor of being invited to participate in. And um, they're busy women, and they really support body literacy and hormone intelligence. If you're not sure where to get a copy of Hormone Intelligence, head over to avivaram.com forward slash book. Thank you so much, and pour yourself a cup of tea, sit back, listen, enjoy, and I hope you're inspired. Ricky and Abby, thank you for being here, and thank you for being such a supporter and for the work that you're doing, which I know is so copacetic with this book, Hormone Intelligence. And thank you for taking the time to interview me about the book. It is our pleasure. Aviva, as I told you before we started, I'm obsessed with you and the work you do. Congratulations <laughs> on this you. beautiful book. It's such a gift for, for women like us that need this information. So thank you for all the work you do for us. Thank you. So, okay, let's uh, talk about your book, Hormone okay. Intelligence. Can you have describe? it here. Like, let's see. Woo! Okay, let's see. Oh, yeah. Can you see it? It's Do you know what gorgeous. one of my favorite things about the book is? Is there's this, I've never seen this on a book before. I don't know if you guys can see that, but there's this stripe up the side there. Yes. Right there. It's like, oh, so yeah, it's, yeah. You, can, you can flip right open to the advanced protocols. And then on the side, it's like there's the fertility protocol or the perimenopause protocol. It's like, it was very innovative. I, I like that. And then there's this nice. cool organic ova shape on the back. That's amazing. Oh. Well, I love you... it. My copy's going to have lots of little dog ears. I can already Exactly. <laughs> you know, I sometimes think my librarian grandmother would, I don't know if she would roll in her grave or applaud <laughs> me because I, to my husband's horror, I write in my books, I underline, I dog, not the ones I write, but like everyone's dog ear. I really use my books. And I, I hope this is that kind of book that women use and then pass on to their daughters and maybe even pass up to their mothers, you know. Such important information. Can we talk about the title? What's the meaning of the yes. title and how did you come up with it? So the title to me is kind of, I describe it as a noun and a verb, probably because I'm a word nerd. But the noun part to me, hormone intelligence, speaks to this innate hormonal blueprint that has really existed across time for all women. I mean, it may shift in that we may not have as many babies as our ancestors did, you know, a hundred years ago. So we may have more menstrual cycles over the course of our life than they did, or we may start, you know, get, go into puberty at a slightly different age than they did. But the menstrual cycle, and the importance of the menstrual cycle as part of our health has not really deviated over the time that we've been on the planet. And so we have this deep innate blueprint that triggers our brain, triggers our ovaries, triggers our uterus, and there's this beautiful interconnected network. So that's the noun. The noun is that innate, organic, wise blueprint that has evolved over time or has persisted over our evolution. And the verb part of it, which I feel is so important, is the action of learning to understand and live in harmony with that blueprint, which means understanding the importance of the menstrual cycle, understanding the importance of our hormones and our gynecology, but also how so much of our hormones shapes and influences our lives and how we can use that to our health advantage and to our life advantage. Mm, so important because I think so, you know, we're so indoctrinated to think, oh, to, to hate our period, to hate, you know, yeah. and it's really, it's an opportunity to really celebrate like how beautiful our bodies work and how uh, the creativity fluck, you know, is in flux throughout the month. It's, yes. it's just such great information. And throughout our life cycles too, right? It's like, as we were talking about before we started formally chatting where each of us is in our perimenopausal or menopausal journey, that information and that blueprint really does continue. And what's really interesting is it's very much a pay it forward kind of situation. So our health when we're in our teenage years health influences our fertility, influences our childbearing, influences our menopausal experience, influences our health in the 30, 40 some odd years we have after menopause. 
So understanding our cycle wherever we enter, and not just our cycle, but understanding our hormones if we're not cycling anymore, or even if you've had your womb removed for some reason, is important as a really powerful vital sign of our overall health. But you know, it's it makes sense that a lot of women would hate their period because so many women have horrible experiences. They have horribly painful periods, horribly, you know, heavy bleeding. So it, it kind of makes sense that we've been indoctrinated to hate it, but then so many of the hormonal imbalances that we're experiencing now kind of create a situation where how could some women not hate it, right? Mhm. Mm-hmm. Totally. Um I would love to hear more about what you describe as this hormone epidemic. Um, Because as you mentioned, Ricky and I are just getting ready to release our new film, The Business of Birth Control, and really looking at the way hormonal birth control intersects with women's health. We definitely see an aspect of this (laughs) hormone epidemic, but we'd love to, to hear more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things I think that you bring out so powerfully in the film is that birth control, which is what we tend to call it, right? Birth control, but it's really used as hormone therapy. So 60% of women or more that are on the pill are actually not on it for contraception. They're on it for all the symptoms that are symptoms of this hidden hormone epidemic. So there are kind of two aspects of the hidden hormone epidemic. One is the fact that there is an epidemic And that epidemic is that 80% of us in the course of our lifetime will have a hormone problem. And I'm not just talking about like a painful period or a PMSE month, but I'm talking about one that's significant enough that's going to make us go and seek medical care. And it could be persistently painful periods, persistently heavy periods, uh, hormonal migraines, any number of, of these symptoms that drive us to the medical doctor's office or maybe nurse practitioner or somewhere else. And there's also this escalation that we've seen over the past few decades of significant hormonal and gynecologic problems. So we now know that one in six women will have a fertility consultation. And I'm not just talking about women who are trying to have a baby at 42. I'm talking about women who are in their late 20s, early 30s. I have a friend who, um, when she was 30, was told that her eggs were basically like fried eggs on the sidewalk and she should just get a fertility consultation and, and get fertility treatment because she hadn't gotten pregnant in six months and she's only 30. And ultimately she, after you know a lot of worry and a lot of anxiety and some consultations, got pregnant naturally. And But I, I hear this kind of thing all the time. Uh, one in eight women has polycystic ovary syndrome, which it, when it's untreated or improperly treated has all of the same consequences as untreated diabetes. Let's take that in for a minute. Untreated diabetes, so cardiovascular risk, you know, stroke, all of that. And then one in 10 women has endometriosis, which can lead to bowel problems, recurrent urinary problems, painful sex, fertility challenges, and a lot of misery. And interestingly, you know, we we hear about the opioid epidemic and how serious it is, and it is. What people, you know, I think people form stereotypes of like who this opioid epidemic is affecting. I can't even tell you the number of, I'm going to do air quotes here in case people are listening and not watching, soccer moms, but I mean literal soccer moms, like my patient in the Midwest who has two kids and a minivan and a bob haircut and sells real estate, who is banging back um, oxycodone because of endometriosis pain that was never treated in her 20s and 30s, led her to be on oxycodone. And on top of that, the large percentage of women who are on narcotics for untreated or unrecognized or now out of control endometriosis, who are also prescribed a benzo for anxiety. And that combination of a benzo plus a opioid medication increases a person's chance of accidental overdose death 10 times. And so this is a serious hidden epidemic. Now, most People are not going to have that level of severity, but tens of millions actually actually do. So there's this epidemic. Oh, and let's just say 30% of women over 60 will end up with a hysterectomy in her life. That is unconscionable. We know from our work as midwife, as film producer around birth, we have a 34% C-section rate in the United States, at least half of which are unnecessary. And we know that the pill is extremely over-prescribed with unintended consequences and side effects, but 
perimenopause and menopause have been virtually neglected areas where, again, let's think about this 30% of women over 60 having an organ removed and all of those women who are prescribed hormone replacement therapy, which is like getting the pill, but at the other end of the spectrum, again, with those unintended consequences. So this epidemic is real. It existed before the pandemic. It's going to continue after the pandemic and much less research and urgency has gone into it. And it's hidden. It's hidden in that um, one, women who are experiencing these symptoms may not even know something's wrong. I can't tell you the number of women I've spoken with, even in these hormone intelligence chats, who went through years of their life experiencing horrible period pain only to think it was normal because they saw their mother go through that and so just assumed it was normal. Their mother didn't know it wasn't normal for herself and, and the daughter didn't know. Or women who have symptoms that they're very embarrassed about and uncomfortable about, bleeding through their clothes, um, uh, vaginal discharge that they don't even know whether it's normal or not, um, being afraid of all kinds of things that may actually be normal that we're not educated about, or being over-medicated or inappropriately medicated for symptoms that, that may be normal, like perimenopausal symptoms sometimes or irregular periods in our teenage years. It's also hidden because a lot of physicians don't know how to recognize and diagnose these conditions. And so you go to your doctor and you say, I'm having horrible pain, I'm having this, I'm having that. And your doctor's response may be, well, that's normal because that's what women experience. We've confused common and normal. And, you know, I think doctors in general, they're seeing patients one, you know, in these one-on-one -on -one encounters and aren't stepping back and looking at the actual data. You know, we know that there's a diabetes, it's endemic. We know that dementia has been escalating, but for whatever reason, and, and there are lots of reasons, it's not gonna say for whatever reason, but due to historical and inherent biases in medicine, these women's symptoms just get brushed aside. So much so that a lot of women end up thinking, well, maybe, maybe I'm imagining this. You know, they end up gaslighting themselves over these symptoms and it just all stays undiscussed. God, it's so, it's so sad. It's just, it's so unfortunate. I'm, I'm really curious about, uh, you say the whole ecosystem healing. What exactly mm -hmm. does that mean? So we think of health in, in conventional medicine as basically you get a diagnosis and then you get a treatment. And there's no real backstory of, well, why did that person develop diabetes? Why did that person develop dementia? Why did that person develop endometriosis? Why did that person develop PCOS? What's going on and why are these symptoms and conditions escalating? We're not really taught, or maybe there's lip service to like the, the role of stress in the influence of health conditions, but we're not really taught about the role of diet, the role of... Um, our microbiome health, the role of how really stress affects us, the role of lack of sleep, the endocrine disruptors that we're exposed to. But our health and our conditions don't happen in a vacuum. They happen within the total ecosystems that we, we live in. And I think this is incredibly important for a number of reasons. One is, in my experience, the first thing most of us do as women, which is so culturally ingrained, when something's going on or going wrong with our bodies is we think, what's wrong with me? And what am I doing wrong? Or what did I do wrong? Or what did I do to deserve this? Like the self-blame is so rampant. And so when we can put this epidemic into context and say, first of all, it's not you. And second of all, there are so many factors that conspire to create these different conditions and how they show up in your body may be genetically predetermined to some extent, but the things that are triggering those genetic switches to go on or off that lead you to actually develop these conditions is not your fault. Now, there is a great deal of data that has not trickled out into conventional medicine from a field of science that I am totally in love with, which is called exposome science. So it's exposed, the things that we are exposed to. And what exposome science shows us, for example, is that chronic inflammation is a root cause of a lot of chronic conditions, including period pain, heavy periods, polycystic ovary syndrome, endometriosis, fertility challenges, and so much more. 
we know that the microbiome through this exposome science and through the enormous amount of work going on in microbiome research may actually be a predisposing cause of, for example, polycystic ovary syndrome. We know that microbiome disruption not only can interfere with fertility, but actually even things like IVF and embryo transfer may happen more effectively when the microbiome is healthy. We know that there is immunologic disruption and inflammation that's happening in endometriosis. So we have to look much further under the hood, and that's what this total ecosystem health is about. It's looking at all the aspects of our health, you know, from our stress levels to our relationships to our jobs to the food we're eating to the health of our gut and how those influence our well-being so that we can understand it and also take the blame off of ourselves. But as one of my teachers used to say, the wound reveals the cure. So in knowing what the causes are, it also gives us an opportunity to say, huh, what can I do to shift these influences in my favor so that my food is working for me, not against me, so that I can understand what things that I'm putting on or in my body might actually be disrupting my hormones. Um, what can I do about my microbiome and how do I know if it's actually a problem for me or not? And what do we do about these factors like endocrine disruptors that um, really have, are having a big impact on our health from honestly before we're even born? So, you know, it can be overwhelming in some ways to think about all these factors, but a big part of what I do in this, in this book, Hormone Intelligence, is say, these, there are little tiny steps that we can all take that can actually make a big difference and help us reclaim this sort of natural inherent blueprint and get back in alignment with it. So amazing, Aviva. Um, can you talk a little bit? I know that like most people generally have a sense about hormones, like that hormones are these kind of messengers in the body. Um, and we hear this term a lot now thrown around, especially in marketing supplements, you know, hormonal balance, hormonal balance, this will give you hormonal balance. Mm -hmm. um, but what does that act really mean? How do you explore that? Yeah. Book? So hormones are constantly fluctuating. So across the arcs of our lives from puberty to our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, throughout pregnancy, they're just constantly shifting. So there's really no hormone balance. It's an ever-changing, it's like being on a seesaw that's just, you know, like this. And then there are those moments where we feel balanced. I think when we're talking about hormone balance, what we're really talking about is that feeling that we get when we're kind of in this good hum in our life. You know, our cycles are going well, our moods are good, we're not having breakouts, we're not having, you know, ragey PMS symptoms. I think that's the sense we have of hormone balance. And I think what we mean when we're experiencing hormone imbalance is something's off, right? It's maybe our libido, it may be our sleep, it may be our cycles are irregular or our cycles are uncomfortable. We have a, a, a sort of tangible inner sense that something's up with my hormones and we say my hormones are imbalanced. What that really translates to is throughout different phases of our life and throughout different phases of our actually monthly menstrual cycle, like there are healthy, normal ranges that estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, um, our thyroid hormone, cortisol, something called sex hormone binding globulin, etc., are supposed to be in. So in the first half of our menstrual cycle, for example, we have more estrogen. After we ovulate, we have more progesterone. There is a predictable cycle of where testosterone peaks and dips, where estrogen peaks and dips, where progesterone peaks and dips. We have a predictable daily cycle of how cortisol functions. It's high in the morning and it dips overnight. And then melatonin picks up in the evening and it dips toward the morning. So when we are, when those hormones are operating, flowing, being produced and released and broken down in the ranges that make us feel good, and those are the ranges that are part of that optimal hormonal blueprint, I think we feel imbalanced. We say our hormones are imbalanced. When those ranges are disrupted, let's say we're not ovulating, we have a lot of stress or we have polycystic ovary syndrome, something's causing us to not ovulate. 
And so then after the, after we ovulate, that's when we would normally produce progesterone. And now we're not producing that progesterone. We may not sleep as well. We may feel more irritable, more agitated. We're not getting that calming effect of estrogen. If our uh, progesterone, if our estrogen, for example, is too high, we may notice that we're getting really painful breasts before our periods. We may have really heavy periods. We may feel more bloating, more water retention, um, more emotional. So there are ways that our hormones show up very predictably. And this is why I think that innate blueprint is so important to understand. You know, we're taught that our hormones make us irrational, unpredictable, hysterical. Um, really, our hormones are some of the most predictable vital signs that we have. Um, this idea of supplements balancing our hormones is very vague. I agree. I think uh, a lot of those products may have ingredients in them that have more or less evidence, historically or scientifically, that they can do something for our hormones. But every woman's hormone situation is going to be a little bit different. So if you're taking sort of a generic formula, but your issue is very specific, it may have one ingredient that might help you. Let's say your progesterone is low and that formula has Vitex in it. It might help bring your progesterone up, but they're so generic. They don't really dial in on what's going on with that individual woman. So I'm not necessarily opposed to them. I usually say, look, if something is, is making what sounds like miracle marketing claims or very broad claims, just be a little bit more cautious about it. Um, you know, and then Everyone can benefit really from a multivitamin, from some uh, fish oil, from vitamin D. Um, often women can benefit from magnesium. So there are some core things that most women across our life cycles were a little bit low in statistically and um, that we can benefit from that probably would help our hormones. I, I have so many questions about all the supplements I put on. But, Go for but, it. Put on, <laughs> no, like DHEA. Is that, mm -hmm. is that for hormone balance? Yeah. Well, it's a hormonal um, precursor. So basically, it's something that's produced in our adrenal glands that acts as a buffer to stress. It's our, our, our adrenals, when, we, when we're more under stress, when we're pumping out cortisol, we naturally produce more DHEA to help buffer that wear and tear of stress. But it also acts as a precursor to testosterone. So sometimes people do adrenal testing or stress testing. A more functional medicine kind of testing, and they're told their DHEA is low. Um, but the thing is, it, 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 it's not that DHEA might never be beneficial for someone, but throwing a supplement at, at a lab test, in my opinion, is really no different than throwing a pharmaceutical at a symptom or a lab test. So if somebody is has, let's say, low DHEA, let's look at what's going on. Are they experiencing a lot of fatigue? What are they missing the building blocks? Are they not getting good fats in their diet? So I always want to go one step further under the hood when I can and see, you know, what can we do with food, sleep, stress, uh, movement, um, joy, happiness, whatever it is before we jump to the supplements. And that said, I mean, I do prescribe supplements in my practice. I talk about supplements in hormone intelligence, but there, there's a lot of hype out there, let's just say, in the supplement world. And that's part of why I wrote this book is, you know, um, I, there's so much information out there. I'm a physician. I'm a midwife. I'm an herbalist. I have 37 years of experience in arguably, I mean, I can, there are a lot of things I can criticize myself about, but I mean, I literally wrote the textbook on women's herbal medicine because I, I actually wrote the textbook. And, you know, I've been doing this a long time and there's not, a, a, you know, I could say every couple of weeks somebody asks me about something and I'm like, oh my gosh, I have no idea. Let me look that up because there's the newest supplement, the newest diet. And I find it overwhelming. I don't know how people who don't have, you know, the ability or training to read studies or interpret the literature or even kind of like get past some of the hype and promotional material that's out there. So a big reason I wrote this book was just sort of make it easier to make these decisions and say, okay, I've done the work for you, so you don't have to work so hard to figure out, can I really use that supplement? Do I really have this symptom? Do I really have that condition? Is this normal? Is it not? And what can I do about it? What do I eat? What don't I eat? Do I really have to, you know, take all of that out of my diet? Do I really have to do this or that? And that's what I try to really answer. I, I'm really curious, Aviva, about your mm -hmm. own hormonal journey. I know you have daughters. Yeah. What has, what has your journey been like? Well, I have been really, really fortunate. And so um, 
Well, let me, let me kind of go back. I grew up in a home where my grandmother could not say the word period. She could not say vagina. She would say, who's it's and a what's it's. You know, you've got your who's it's and it's coming out of your what's it's or you've got your what's it's and it's coming out of your who's it's. So she was very, very repressed about these things. And my mom, being a child of the late 50s and a teenager and young adult woman in the 60s, went gung-ho the opposite. So I could have a girlfriend over my house, you know, at like 11 years old or 12 or 13, and my mom could scream from the bathroom, hey, will you get me a tampon? I'm in here and I bring one. So like my mom was the opposite, but um, she actually has had quite a few hormone struggles. She had um, ovarian cysts when I was a girl. I remember waking up in the middle of the night. My grandmother was there because my mom had gone to the hospital. She's had thyroid problems. Um, So Um, I really don't know if it was the fact that I got on this more natural path so early that has allowed me to have a very smooth sailing hormonal experience, but I started tracking my cycle when I was 15 years old and was already studying midwifery and herbal medicine then. So when I first got my period, um, you know, sometimes I had cramps and I remember bleeding through. I talked with Nicole Jardim about this. Um, this weekend about how um, I remember just in sixth grade, like bleeding through my pants in class and this girl coming and like wrapping a sweatshirt around my waist. I had my moments, but overall um, I've never taken the pill because I got on this path so early. Um, I've always done um, fertility awareness method and um, had really easy, fortunate pregnancy experiences. I've also followed a really healthful diet since I was a teen started doing yoga, spending a lot of time in nature. So um, I've been really fortunate. I would say perimenopause and well, perimenopause was easy. Um, Menopause, I hit menopause at 54. I actually turned 55 the Monday after we record, after our recording of this, I turned 55 um, the day before this book drops officially. And I would say menopause for me was more emotionally startling than I expected. You know, I've really been reflecting on this a lot. When we're teenagers or when we're going into puberty, there's a lot of hormonal upheaval and emotional upheaval and all this stuff going on, but we're becoming women, right? There's something, we're becoming adults. There's something empowering and exciting and we're like, we want to be adults because who wants to be a kid anymore? And when we're becoming moms, yes, there's scary stuff. There's a lot of emotions, but we're becoming moms. And the way our culture is set up when we go into menopause, we're becoming what? Like middle-aged or older, or there's so many tropes about that. And I think there's so many incredible women that are busting through that. You know, Michelle Obama with her like cutout shirt on a nighttime talk show at 58 with her bosoms, like, you know, just resting at the bottom of that beautiful cutout shirt or Yoko Ono at 80 something crushing it or Helen Mirren, like these women who are, and I think about like all these women, Jennifer Aniston, Halle Berry. I mean, these are all women in their mid and late fifties now who I think are, I I call it rebranding menopause. It's just giving a new face to what has been considered something historically that we kind of like are past our prime in so many ways. And, And medically, this has been the case also. I mean, the whole origins of hormone replacement therapy in the 70s, 70s was all about replenishing women's fountain of youth now that we're dried up in menopause. And it was really phrased this way. The big book that kind of like was all about menopause and hormone replacement therapy was called Forever Young. And so we live in a culture that's very ageist, very driven in a certain skewed direction. And so for me, even though the symptoms of perimenopause, I haven't had any of the vaginal dryness, low libido, I've had some hot flashes, but really nothing to write home about. But the psycho-emotional piece was not something that I expected to experience and having to really do some inner um, understanding of that, of what it means. And so it's been exciting to look at role models um, who are just shifting that whole consciousness and also to embrace this time in my life to recognize um, one can finally say one has experience and wisdom and is now in a leadership position and also doesn't give a fuck about really what people think because you're just in your power. Um, I would wish that for us at all ages, but that's basically been my arc. It's been pretty smooth, very empowered. Um, I was very fortunate from a young age to have a mom who was a, a kind of an ardent feminist and who always encouraged me to 
speak up for myself and advocate and speak up for others. And so um, my interface with the medical community has also been, it's been limited, um, but also one where I've not had a hard time advocating for myself. I can get a little bit, yeah, I can, I can protect my space and speak up for what I need. So I wish that for other women too. And of course, you know, the midwifery journey, right? I mean, I've been a midwife for, gosh, I mean, you guys, I started turning 55 and I started studying this stuff when I was 15. And I mean, I was already practicing as a midwife by 22. So I've also had really beautiful women in my life who, midwives, especially the home birth midwives tend to be much more natural in how we live. Um, You know, I really, I didn't even own makeup until my 40s. I really have been fortunate to, not I was I was making my own homemade organic cotton menstrual pads by the time I was 16 which oh my gosh I mean people thought was so gross but now they're like cool right but there were no cool products like that back then there weren't organic tampons there weren't organic pads there weren't things that could protect you from endocrine disruptors so I just happened to be really in the right place at the right time learning about um, the history of women's medicine and medical biases, ecological issues, food issues, pharma, all at this one time that I think allowed me to really mitigate and minimize my exposures to so many of the triggers that so many women are are constantly bombarded with before they know any different. What have you been wondering um so like, so for, you know, Ricky and I, who are in the, the perimenopausal group, right. Which is a yeah. pretty big group, right. Demographically the over 35, or they say, right. It's the 15 years leading up to the final. <laughs> yeah. Right. More or less. So like, what are, I guess, some of the, you know, imbalances or issues that you see in that group of women and, you know, what are, kind of your, your general recommendations, like you mentioned before, you know, about maybe estrogen being too, too high, you know? So, um, you know, what are, what are ways that people can look at to balance that? I know, um, we did, Ricky did a, um, you did the dried hormone test, Ricky. I just did it. I haven't gotten my results from my dried hormone test and I don't really know what I'm looking for, but you know, I guess there's this feeling of like, okay, well, I'm 50. And so I got to catch things before they like slide off the wrong way. <laughs> mm-hmm. But just curious, you know, like what are the most common things you, you see and, and like, what are your most, um, how do you tackle what those? Yeah. So um, first of all, you know, with hormone testing in our late forties, fifties, early fifties to see whether we're in perimenopause versus to, or menopause versus seeing what our hormone status is, there's kind of a difference there. So back to this idea of forever young and this idea of estrogen, we know that uh, on an evolutionary basis, there is a period of time between when we go into puberty and when we go into menopause that we have a lot of estrogen and we have a specific kind of estrogen called estradiol, which is very potent and it gives us our juicy female shape. It gives us that you know, fertile mucus when we're in our mid-cycle, it supports pregnancy and, and really creates so much of the emotional milieu that we experience along with progesterone. And we know that the average age of menopause internationally and probably has been for time immemorial is around 51, 52 years old, at which time we no longer have that potent volume of estradiol we switched to something called estriol. I'm sorry, estrone. Estriol is when we're pregnant. Estrone. And estrone, we're still producing estrogen, but we're not producing it as much from our ovaries. We're now producing it from our fat tissue. And um, so it's important to have a little bit of that tissue on our hips and our butts, and it's making estrogen. So that is what we're supposed to do. And from an evolutionary biology perspective, um, we're not supposed to have high levels of estrogen and high levels of progesterone. And I think we have to trust on some level that nature knows best. And there are people who say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter because our ancestors would have died 
at you know a young age. They would have died by 55, so they wouldn't have had all those decades of low estrogen and low progesterone that are dangerous for us. That's not actually historically true at all. In fact, we have a long life historically past menopause. And in so many cultures, the grandmother, there's even something called the grandmother hypothesis that shows that during those years, we become really powerful, really valuable members of our community. Not that we weren't before, but now we're freed up from raising our children and we can support the other mothers that are raising children. We can be um, elders, teachers, craftspersons, midwives, healers. In some cultures, the person didn't become the midwife or the healer until their own children were grown. And um, so first of all, when we look at these hormone levels at women in their late 40s, early 50s, what are we actually looking for? So we can look for follicle-stimulating hormone and see if it's elevated, which tells us, yes, we are in perimenopause or menopause because it's our brain trying to stimulate our ovary more and more and more to produce a follicle and our ovary saying, yeah, I'm sleeping now. I'm done with my work. You can just, you can bang away all you want, but I'm not going to produce an egg and I'm not going to ovulate anymore. And eventually the brain says, okay, I don't need to keep producing so much FSH. I got the message. Same with luteinizing hormone. It starts to go down because we're not getting that follicle stimulated. As a result, our estrogen levels go down and our progesterone levels go down. So a lot of times when we are testing for hormones in women in our late 40s and our 50s, we can look to see whether we're in perimenopause and that's a legit reason if someone's having symptoms and they wanna know, hey, is this really what's going on? Although in reality, if you're at that age and it looks like perimenopause or menopause, it is perimenopause or menopause, so I beg the question of whether we really need to bother testing, you know, if it walks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. So then the other reason that people look at hormone testing at that age is this idea of optimizing estrogen or optimizing progesterone. But what are we optimizing it to? Are we optimizing it to our levels when we were 24 or 30 or 34? There is no standard. And so if we're actually optimizing to a level when we were younger, when biologically our body is saying enough of those potent hormones, enough of those hormones that actually trigger cells to proliferate and grow at an age where we don't want that to happen anymore because that can actually cause cancer, um, then we don't really have a standard that we're optimizing to and we end up kind of buying into that forever young model. Right? We have to bring our hormones back to a level that they aren't actually meant to be at. So my perspective on perimenopause is, one, if you're having a little bit of signs and symptoms, you know, your cycles are getting a little irregular, you're having a little bit of hot flashes, you know, something is telling you that things are changing, that's normal because things are changing. If, however, those changes are making you extremely uncomfortable, that's kind of how we want to think about menstrual cycles almost when we think about teenagers or women in their 20s and 30s. Do we just throw the pill at it? Well, sometimes actually, yeah, taking the pill might be a game changer for someone with severe acne or severe horrible periods, but it's not getting to the root of why they're having those. So if a woman is having really severe hot flashes, if a woman is having hormonal migraines that she didn't have before or worsening migraines, or if she's having an autoimmune condition or she's having horrible sleep problems, yes, hormone therapy may help with some of those symptoms. But we want to look under the hood at what is really going on because is it that she had really high estrogen levels and now they're plummeting and that's causing those migraines? Is she having less of that estradiol, which is anti-inflammatory, and so now she's having signs of joint pain or autoimmune conditions because this inflammation that was being sort of held at bay by that higher potent estrogen is now manifesting. Um, we know that women who have really significant disruptive hot flashes, I'm talking like 8, 10 or more a day, or who have really severe night sweats actually have a higher risk of developing medical problems later on, including um, uh, breast cancer and may have a higher risk of cardiovascular disease. So again, progesterone may be great for helping her sleep, but we can't ignore that we also need to look at these, um, what these hormones are telling us about our vital sign and what these signs, how they're showing up. 
And the thing is, most medical doctors have no idea about this. You know, there's just too much medical literature to keep up with all the time. I focus on women's hormones and autoimmune conditions. So I'm aware of this literature that's saying, hey, we can't just ignore hot flashes and put a Band-Aid on them of hormone therapy, even if we use hormone therapy for symptom relief. Let's start with things that aren't hormones to see if we can help, whether that is using flax seeds or lemon balm and valerian or ginseng or vitex, any number of herbs or supplements that can help before we escalate. And even if we do escalate to these hormones, let's make sure that we're looking at what's really going on here. And the thing is, hormone testing won't necessarily show you what's going on because you know, what should your estrogen be right now? What should your progesterone be right now? Because it's going to be fluctuating day to day. And that's why these symptoms show up. So it's complex. And I'm, you know, if somebody wants to get hormone testing, absolutely. I mean, I love that you guys are looking into what's going on in your body, but I think we have to take the results and what they mean in, in a big context of, we don't know. And what does this mean for our intended evolutionary biology? And that's a really big point of hormone intelligence, right? As I mentioned earlier, there's this innate blueprint. And we have so much ability now as women to step outside of that innate blueprint, right? We can do wonderful things to prevent pregnancy, but they have unintended consequences. We can do wonderful things to calm our hormone symptoms, but they can have unintended consequences. So are we going into those knowingly? And why are we experiencing these symptoms that actually are foremothers, you know, when we go back to like hunter-gatherer times actually didn't experience? So partly it's because we're living outside of that, those systems that support that innate blueprint. I hope that answers. That was a very long answer. <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts on payment. Ah. It's amazing. It's, uh -oh. it's just your, your head, is, my head is spinning. Can I, can I ask you about the sixth vital sign? Did you come yes. up with that concept? I did not come up with that concept. So back in um, 2005, the American Association of Pediatrics, and then subsequently the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists recognized that um, we should be looking at the menstrual cycles of adolescent girls and young women as a vital sign, as important as pulse, heart rate, blood pressure, temperature, and pain. So those are considered the five cardinal vital signs. It used to be just those first four, and then pain got added on as a fifth vital sign. So sometimes you'll hear people describe the menstrual cycle as a fifth vital sign. It's not inaccurate, but what was originally described in the literature was a, it, as a sixth vital sign. And then again, in 2015, those same organizations kind of re, like almost re-ratified that idea saying that we should be paying attention because if a girl, a teenage girl is having heavy periods and really severe period pain, let's not just stick ibuprofen on it. Let's actually explore whether this is possibly endometriosis so we can mitigate the long-term consequences when she's young. If she's having irregular periods and acne and severe mood swings and weight gain, let's not just put the pill on it, let's actually consider whether this might be polycystic ovary syndrome so we can mitigate the complications of that now. And that got expanded to include women's menstrual cycles in general. And now we're understanding that it's not just our menstrual cycles, but it's the entire arc of our hormonal life. So it's our menstrual cycles, how they're showing up, as I was just talking about in perimenopause and into menopause, that are predictive of bigger um, issues around our health, that the menstrual cycle is almost like the proverbial canary in the coal mine in that it's a very sensitive indicator showing up in our bodies as to environmental or hormonal disruption. The two problems with this concept are that one, hardly any of us as physicians are aware of it. I did not learn about it in my medical training, and I have never heard any of my doctor colleagues talk about this other than the few doctor colleagues in the wellness space with me who are aware of it. And so it's never been implemented at any level in gynecology or pediatrics or primary care. And secondly, I don't feel like they looked far enough under the hood at this vital sign. So they said, okay, if someone's having painful periods, 
maybe it's endometriosis. If someone's having polycyst, uh, you know, acne and irregular periods, maybe it's PCOS. If they're having uh, uh, miserable mood swings, maybe it's PMS. Let's look at that. But what they didn't go is the next level down and say, okay, why is that happening? So they went one level down and said, okay, it's PCOS. Let's put her on the pill. Let's give her some metformin. Okay, it's endometriosis. Let's put her on the pill. Let's maybe recommend, you know, a surgery for her, a laparoscopy. But they didn't go next level down and say, well, what's causing those things? What's the real, what is this the real vital sign of? And that gets back to the canary in the coal mine, which is the reason that canaries were sent down into a coal mine. This was a real thing. They were put in little cages. The miners would blast a hole in the earth, but when they blasted a hole in the earth, methane and other gases, if they went deep enough, would rise up. And the miners would drop down into these holes and they would go unconscious and die because they would be poisoned by these gases. So they learned that if they put a canary in and drop the canary down and the canary survived, the air was safe for the miners because the canaries, one, were more expendable, and two, the um, canaries were really sensitive. They're very small and sensitive to these gases. And that's the same with us and our hormones. We're one, we're considered, we're not medically expendable, but there's so much bias in medicine that women's health has really been considered peripheral and somewhat expendable um, in terms of the research and the data and the awareness of symptoms and so forth. Um, but also our hormones are so exquisitely sensitive to the external environment and the internal environment. I'm talking like one analogy that I've, I've heard to describe hormones is if you took like one drop, literally one drop, like a teardrop size blue dye and dropped it in an Olympic swimming pool filled with water. If you looked at our, you know, proportionally, like parts per million of things that we're exposed to in terms of endocrine disruptors can be mimicking our own hormones. And that's why they're so exquisitely sensitive. And that's why the hormonal, the, the menstrual cycle is considered a vital sign, just like that canary in the coal mine. There's this exquisite sensitivity. And this is such a gorgeous concept because it really means that every month for 400 cycles of our lives, because we have 400 menstrual cycles on average, and then even after we stop regularly cycling, we have, for lack of a better way of putting it, a scorecard or report card that we can actually check in on every month and say, is my innate blueprint really being honored here? And is my cycle showing up in a way that on a, on a biological level, it's within healthy parameters, whatever that variation is for you, because there's variation in there, but is it healthy for you? And it's a way that we can also start to learn to pay attention to our cycles and what does get our cycle into balance? What does get our cycle off balance? What does lead to pain? What relieves our pain? And it's something men don't have. So, in, you know, back to what you were saying earlier, Ricky, when we were first chatting about how we've learned to curse our cycles, you know, this, I think if, if there was any takeaway from my book, aside from, of course, all the actionable things that we can do to kind of realign with that blueprint, it's that our hormones are these powerful messengers that are trying to tell us something and it's showing up through our symptoms. It's showing up through our cycles. They're actually trying to help us. So I jokingly say in the book, like we've been shooting the messenger all this time instead of listening to the message and then taking action based on that. So it's, it's such a beautiful it's a beautiful gift, in my opinion, that we have not to be like reductive or sound unfeminist. It's, it, to me, it's like so feminist. It's so empowering to learn to pay attention to our cycles and learn what all these things mean and what we can do about it. So yes. no, I didn't make it up, <laughs> but I love it. It's so amazing of even, you know, it just, I guess for me, like as you're talking, I just immediately think, you know, who is going to impart this knowledge to mm. menstruators of the future because you know i think everything you're talking about this is not something we can expect from our health system even with midwives i mean even midwives doing you know well woman care it's like the system is not set up for midwives to be teaching classes to 14 year olds about, you know, what their menstrual symptoms. So like, I mean, how do you 
do you think this is something that just like parents, you know, need to educate themselves and then educate their children and it needs to be like passed down wisdom or like, where are we supposed to be? Yeah. I love your question, Abby, because, well, I love it for so many reasons, but it really just clicked something in my, in my being, which is what are we actually expecting from our medical system, right? We've come to expect our medical system to be our health system, but it's not really our health system. It is a medical system. It's a medical industry. And I think we forget that it's, it's an industry and it's based on sickness. It's not based on health and well-being. Sadly, historically, it was the role of the midwife in the community. When we look all the way back to the origins of this country, when we look back to the indigenous origins of this country, and we look to every culture in the world, it has been the midwife, the grandmother, the auntie, who has passed this information on to each successive generation. So I think we need to not actually look to our medical model to give us health information. We need to look to our medical model to give us information when we need more information about what's going on with a symptom or a problem, a diagnosis, if that's what we need, a recommendation for a treatment, and then we decide if that treatment is best for us. And certainly it's perfect for emergency care, infectious disease, accidents, injuries, that sort of thing. But I think we need to reimagine and reinvent, first of all, um, our conversations with our own selves, with our mothers, our sisters, our daughters, our friends about our bodies, be able to say the words vagina or yoni, period, whatever words that we use um, really comfortably to be able to have these conversations about discharge and pregnancy and sex and pain and discomfort and joy and pleasure and all of these things that um, I think we've kind of shielded ourselves from talking about and even fully knowing and experiencing on, on all from pain to pleasure. And then reimagining who it is that's talking with our daughters. It's not happening in schools. Most sex education remains poorly, you know, inadequate. There are so many restrictions about what people can and can't say. Um, most of what kids learn these days about sex and bodies comes from television, sadly, um, from porn. And, um, and that porn has actually gotten more aggressive. So it's creating a horribly skewed version of sex for most young people. And, um, you know, what they read in magazines or find on the internet. And so we're not, we're still not getting that information in the ways that we wanted as young women. And I think we're still not fully giving it to our daughters. And I think we also have to recognize that our daughters and sons don't always want to hear it from their mothers. So who in our communities are the trusted people? Is it your sister? You know, as a mom, is it your sister? Is it your best friend? Is it your daughter's or son's best friend's mother who may be having that conversation or father if it's a boy, you know, if we're going to kind of think about it that way in terms of appropriate, safe conversations. Um, and I do think the midwives um, ideally would reinstate that role. When I was a young midwife and my daughters were young, other moms in the community who's, who, like my own daughters, didn't really want to hear it from me, their daughters didn't want to hear it from them. So we would put together, but they would, they would surreptitiously kind of say, can you put together like a, an arts and crafts session, but around menstrual cycles? So I used to do these cool little um, gatherings, you know, eight or 10 girls, and we'd get together and we would do some crafts and just kind of an open conversation where the moms weren't there, right? And they, I had latitude to answer questions, um, creating uh, community conversations. And it's, it's extra work and we're already busy, but you know, or having resources, you know, having resources like my website, some of the other women that are in the hormone intelligence chats who teach about menstrual health um, that we can direct young women to, to get this new level of information. The other thing that we didn't have available to us when we were young and first menstruating, we were still young, but when we were first menstruating and in those years of our lives where we needed that information were cycle trackers. So I was fortunate to have a pen and paper tracker, but we can now give our daughters a cycle tracker and to say, you know, if you want this, it's just a great tool for understanding. And they might say, ugh, mom, but secretly they might actually be like, hmm, let me check that out. And so there are lots of ways now, but having the conversations is so important. And yeah, reimagining who are our, who are our educators in our community, you know, how do health coaches, cool doctors who want to do it, cool midwives, nurse practitioners, but moms, you know, moms holding a cool book club, just have a book club, you know, with your other moms in your community and their daughters and pick a book um, to read my book, fix your period, um, 
woman code. There are, you know, many, many of them. Um, Laura Bryden's uh, uh, period, period repair manual to just start having the conversations. And watch this. Watch this with your daughters or leave it on somewhere they can watch it themselves. I hope this book, you know, back to what we're saying, is that dog-eared, passed on from mother to daughter to sister over generations or in your life, you're, you know, you're reading it now at 30 and you're picking it back up at 50 and going, oh, I remember that conversation that Abby and Ricky and Aviva had. <laughs> and we are also going to have you on our body literacy series uh, in this month of June. Thank so you. We're excited you know, to be a part of that. So we'll be talking about it with you more in a few weeks. <laughs> I love that. You know, I was in the shower one morning, which is where I do my thinking or my inspiring. My inspiring happens in the shower. And I was thinking like, well, well, if you're going to be intelligent about something, what's the first thing you need? Literacy. And I started thinking about you two in my shower, um, how body literacy is the first step to hormone intelligence. Mm, Amazing. Abby and Ricky, thank you so much for joining me in these chats. It is such a pleasure and an honor to have had you talk with me about my book and to share this space. So thank you so much. And thank you everybody for joining us. Thank you. Much love. Have a beautiful day. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Natural MD Radio. If you did, please go to avivaram.com and join the conversation about the show on my blog. And while you're there, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. It's free and it's jam-packed with powerful tips to help you take back your health naturally. That's avivaram.com. Take care and see you next time.